Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, uh, we are in your sight, and we acknowledge that you are in control over all things. Um, you are the one who shows us what we cannot see on our own. You give us the divine perspective when we can only see an earthly perspective. Lord, you show us that, as we've been singing this morning, that we are in a spiritual fight. And so, Lord, in this moment, would you equip us for battle? Because as we're here worshiping, Lord, this is just a moment because we're going to go out in a few more moments from now, and we're going to do battle this week. And so, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit in this moment to help us to understand your word. Lord, I'm just your servant, but your word is what's powerful. And we're asking for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit in this moment, that you would reveal to us the things that we had not yet seen before. But at the end of all this, we're going to glorify your name. That's why we're actually here. So help us do the work that we can't do on our own. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, well, in the Garza household this week, we have had uh, quite the eventful uh, week. It started out very normal um, and uh, went to Mitchell on Thursday to get some furniture. I came back. Uh, my son, Augie, was up having a great time uh, with Justine and then uh, proceeded to face plant on the floor, which led to a bloody mouth. And uh, now he looks like a jack-o'-lantern because he lost his front tooth. And so... Uh, helicopter parents, we ended up going to the ER, came back, and it was just, just one tooth. Uh, so we're, we're learning what, what the next season of life is going to look like for him and, and going, it's okay, you're still cute, you're still ours. Um, and then we proceeded to all get sick on Friday. And then Saturday, we went, we will not let our joy be taken from us, and so we went to the fair. And so if you haven't been to the fair yet, um, I recommend... Uh, recommend going and um, you'll spend about uh, $40 in about 10 minutes just for food and and but you'll still have a great time so we were able to do that uh, yesterday and just as we enter into this fall season I think there's much though for us from the word of God I, I want to put up a uh, statement for you if we go to the next slide please great living is okay here's what I know as a church kid so children, if you're in the room, and I see many of you here, we all know that the right answer to our Sunday school teachers is either one of two things. The right answer is always Jesus or the Bible, right? And maybe a third one would be pray, right? Don't do that here, okay? Living is fill in the blank. You don't have to, have to say it out loud, but for you, what does it mean to be alive? What wakes you up in the morning? What keeps you going? Is it work? Is it family? Is it vacation, vice? Could it be a sports game? Could it be a relationship that you're in? Um, what does it mean for you to feel alive? Now go to the next slide, okay? So if that's living, what is dying for you? How would you fill in the blank based on what you just said a moment ago? If work was what it meant to be alive, could it be dying would be losing your job? Or dying would be, if family is everything, uh, disunity within family. If it's a vice, is living, could it be that dying would be, uh, or an addiction, could it be having to go on a detox? Could it be that relationship falling apart? What makes life life for you, and therefore what makes death death? What is the thing that you cherish the most? This morning, we're going to be looking at 
perhaps one of the most famous statements in all of scripture out of uh, Philippians 1:18 through 26. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what we're gonna be looking at uh, today. We're in the second part, if you were with us last week, of Paul's missionary update. If you were with us, basically what Paul said was, I'm in prison, uh, but the cup is half full, it's not half empty. Here's a silver lining. People are hearing about the gospel who aren't saved, and those who are saved are seeing what I'm going through, and they're having courage for them to go preach the gospel in Rome. That's what he said so far. So that's his present circumstance this morning, we're going to be looking, about his, looking at his future outlook. And I hope that by what we do this morning, by seeing Paul's future outlook, it's going to help us go, how do I live with the end in mind? How do I think about my own future? How do I think about things like the life I have and then the death that I'm going to eventually have? How do I think of those things and then live with the end in mind? How seriously do we think about that future? There was a book that I read in college uh, called Don't Waste Your Life by Piper. And if you're a high schooler or college age in your 20s, you need to get this book. Don't waste your life. And you need to read it. Um, at the beginning of the book, Piper talks about his uh, father who was an evangelist. And he said, I would go with my dad and I got to see him preach one time. And, um, and at the end of the service, gave an opportunity for people to respond in salvation and r- receive Christ into their lives and there was an older gentleman, probably in his 70s, and um, he had received Christ that morning or that day. And I remember seeing him, and he had his hands, his face in his hands, and he was weeping. And he kept crying out, I wasted it. I wasted it, just in tears. I've wasted it. And what was dawning on him in that moment was that he had spent the first 70 plus years of his life chasing things that didn't matter pursuing things that always led to disappointment. And he had realized that even though he had become a Christian now, he only had maybe a few more years, if that, left to live for Christ, and it just hit him. I wasted it. I wasted it. And for me, as a early 20-year-old, I, I remember, um, in my early 20s, I remember reading that, and it just haunted me. In a way, if I'm honest, I, I think it still it gets me today. I think it still, still, I still think about it. That's why I'm saying it to you now. Because... I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, I wish I would have spent, like, have you ever seen anyone on their deathbed that goes, I wish I would have spent more time at work than away from my family um, on their deathbed? But what are the things that people say when they're in that moment? What What would you say if you found yourself on your deathbed today or tomorrow? Would you be able to look back and say, I didn't waste it? So my hope is by looking at this statement, to live as Christ and a die is gain. We will be able to live with the end in mind by the end of this morning. We'll have that thought process more clear in our head. And in the process, we will not waste our life. So let me read verses 18, uh, the last part of 18, and then I'm going to go through verse 20 right here. Yes, Paul says, and I will rejoice. For I know that though your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with the full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's what the Christian's joy-filled confidence is, that you know at the end of all of this, you are going to be delivered. 
Paul, you notice how he begins. He begins by saying, I, look at verse 18b, that last part there, I rejoice. We've been pointing this out week after week after week, that his tone is not what you expect for someone in prison. He, remember we said a few weeks ago, he says, I yearn for you. I care about you, Church of Philippi. He praises God and he thanks God for them. He is rejoicing in prison. And it just seems so foreign to me in some way because I think if I was in prison, I would probably be complaining and bitter. And yet for Paul, the cup is always half empty, half full, not half empty. And so you look at him, a man full of joy, the happiest person in Rome, though he's in handcuffs or in chains. And we go, why? Because he understands that he's going to be delivered from something. Now, if you read the commentators, they're going to say, Paul thinks that he is, many of them will say, Paul thinks that he's going to be delivered eventually from prison. If you remember, Paul is in uh, Rome under house arrest awaiting trial to see what's going to happen to his life. And so he thinks, I'm going to be delivered from that. But in a more real sense, he is not only going to be delivered from a human court, he understands that he's going to be delivered at the divine court on that final day of judgment. And the reason he has that confidence is that he says in verse 19, for I know that your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. And the first reason for that confidence, friends, that he has is because others are praying for him. Now, let me ask you, don't answer. Do you value prayer? I don't think there's a one of us who have said, I'm a Christian, who would say, no to that, that question. We would all say, yes, you ought to value prayer. Should we meet with the Lord on a daily basis and do daily devotions with him? Yes. Should we pray with our brothers and sisters? Yes. We know we should do these things. But I think a problem that we have about prayer, I think when you listen to someone pray, it actually reveals what they really believe. I think our problem with prayer is that we have a deficient view of God, and that's one of the reasons we don't do it. We don't value it nearly as much. Listen to someone pray the next time, and that will show you what they really believe about God. Dear God, I hope you can. That might reveal someone who doesn't have a strong, faith-filled belief that God can actually answer prayer. Or you come across someone who says, Lord, I know that you are the one who is over heaven's armies. I believe that you can act in this moment. Lord, help that, that's someone who believes that in a big God. You can see the difference in how big someone's God is based on how they pray. I think to get to that point about theology, though, how someone's view of God can affect how you pray, let me show you it in this way. Maybe for many of us, we don't pray because of this. Let me put the big question like this. It goes, uh, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and his providence to ordain and sustain all things with, with our responsibility to obey his commands, such as the necessity of prayer. Or if you really want it more simple than that, hey, preacher, if God's in control of everything, why do I got to pray for stuff, right? Why do I got to pray if, he's gonna, if, he, if he holds the whole world in his hands? What difference does my prayer make if he's in charge of all things? Here's how I would answer that to you. I believe that God has ordained that our prayers are the means of his intervention in our lives. So see that when you pray, you are not just saying empty words to just the air around you, but you are praying to an almighty God who has designed it this way, 
that he would give you the thought that you would pray for, you would pray it out, and then he would respond to it. Your prayers are not meaningless. They are powerful, not because of what you say, but because of he who acts in you and then responds to the prayer that he gave to you to begin with. What a mighty God we serve, that he's given us the spirit to be able to do this, and yet he's given us the object of our faith, Jesus, and it's not how strong our faith is, it's the object of our faith, and we pray to him. And so when you are praying, you are enacting what God is willing to accomplish for his good purpose. So when you say, yet not I, but Christ through me, the Christ through me, that is the spirit acting, the spirit of Jesus acting through you. My grandfather was 92 or 93 when he passed away. And I remember, I have, a, I have a memory being at Blackwater Falls State Park in West Virginia. We would have our family reunions there every few years. And uh, I sat down with my grandfather and he said this, this thought to me. He goes, Aaron, I don't know what I'm still doing here. <laughs> I remember him saying that. I don't know what in the world, I'm 92, 93, why am I still here? I've actually heard some of you say that to me um, in re recent days. I don't know what I'm still doing here. Can, can I just speak for a moment to our, to our older generation here who has given so much to the life of Bethesda? If you have found yourself asking that question, what is my purpose? It's not just a question that 20-year-olds ask. It's a question all of us ask. What am I still doing here? Here is what I know and what I, would, what I wish I would have known to say to my own grandfather. You are here to pray for God's intervention in our lives. I had a, had a um, fellow saint come up to me this morning and said, hey, I just want to let you know, I prayed for you last night. And what that does for me is it gives me that confidence that Paul has to go, we're going to get across that finish line somehow. I don't know how that's going to work out, but I know he's going to be here. So if you are not dead, you are not done. And God still has a purpose for you, and that is that you would pray for the church. So let me ask, would you pray for our elders? Would you pray for our deacons? Would you pray for our teachers? Don't just pray for the pastors. Pray for the pastor's wives, right? They need your prayers. And so if you are asking, Lord, what is my purpose? Clearly, it is that you would pray and we would see that God is for us and he is working in our midst. I think the second reason Paul has for this is this utter confidence that he just rejoices in is he says the supply of the Holy Spirit. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit the force, like the force from Star Wars? Is the Holy Spirit like the genie from Aladdin that you rub and then he gives you whatever you want? Who is the Holy Spirit? I think when you read the scriptures, what you're going to find is that the Spirit is not a force. He doesn't just act on our whims, but he is the third person of the triune Godhead, and he is fully divine. And Jesus says, I am leaving, and when I leave, I'm going to send you the helper who proceeds from the Father through the Son, and he has made his home in every single one of us. So as I look at every single one of us out here today who have called the name of Jesus, I'm looking at friends who just aren't people who will live for eternity, but people who actually have the Spirit of God within them. Do you let your mind actually process what that means? How powerful and how big that is, that God would make your temple his home? And so as we're here, it's not just a group of people listening to one guy yap in front of them. It's the Spirit of Jesus who's present in this room. Let your mind sit on that when you feel alone. He is not 
away from you. He is present. So he points you to Jesus, he empowers you, and he gives you the ability to obey what he has called us to do. So think of this. If you read the book of Acts, what you're going to find is that in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit pours out on the believers there. And that's, that moment, I think, is what we could call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when you believe in Christ, you get a full up filling of the Holy Spirit. But if you keep reading the book of Acts, one of the things that you also find is that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes and proclaims this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes and heals that person, does this, that, and the other. And so what happens in our lives is that when we believe in Christ, we receive the seal of the Holy Spirit. We're filled with him. But guess what? He continues to empower us for the further work of ministry as we continue on. Maybe for some of us in this room, the thing that we need to pray for is say, Lord, I repent because I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, but I have ignored your Holy Spirit, and I haven't received the power that he has for my life. And maybe the reason why I keep falling to sin is because I'm white-knuckling it and doing it on my own, and I have not yet turned to the one who is present with me, and I said he will never leave me or forsake me. Maybe... You need to say, Lord, show me the Spirit once again. And that's who Paul turns to in his incredible, incredible confidence that he has. There's a final thing, though. If you look at verse 20, I think it shows us. It shows us that the reason we have incredible hope is because we know that we're going to courageously glorify God in our life and in our death. We'll look at death in just a moment, but look at your own life now. And I want to ask you two questions. Um, Paul says elsewhere, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I can imagine in a room like this, there would be, I, I, I assume that we're all pure, Christ-following people, never sin, nothing like that. But I assume there's a, perhaps a possibility that there might be someone who goes, if we just all did it my way, things would be a lot better. If we just did it my way, man, things would turn out all right. I see a few of you nodding, which is great. Um, and so let me ask you this, though. If we were all to imitate you, though, in this room, we were to imitate how you're following Christ, how you're not following Christ, what would Bethesda look like? There's no such thing, dear friend, as hidden sin. We all, we, we all impact the person to our left, right, in front of us, and behind us. If we were all to follow you this morning, could we say honestly that we are imitating Christ? By following you, we look more like our Savior. If not, how is God calling us to change? I think a second question I want to ask you is, can you really say with Paul that the joy of your life is honoring Christ in every aspect of your life, whether things are good or whether you're in prison? I've realized that as I've been preaching this, I don't know if you've sensed this, but I, I definitely have sensed this, that Paul's life is so removed from many of our own. Like, you're clearly not in prison this morning, Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? We're all here this morning, okay? It seems so foreign to us, so lofty, that this guy would have these high, incredible ideals, and we'd go, how could I ever live up to them? Let me tell you a story. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the Lord had done so many different things. The dominoes had to fall perfectly for me to be the guy that is standing up here heralding God's word to you. He did so much to bring Justine and I to Bethesda. And I could only see my perspective from a certain angle. I couldn't see fully in the moment what the Lord was doing along the way. One of those things that I had mentioned was that at a certain point early on in ministry, I was, 
I was cleaning toilets and, and I had been asked to, um, I was doing ministry and then I was asked to clean toilets and do janitorial work. And I remember thinking, to be honest with you, can I just be honest? I was like, y'all, I, I, I've got, I got three higher education degrees. I have done this, I've done this, I've done that. I've accomplished this. And you want me to clean some toilets? What's wrong with y'all? That, that's what was going through my mind. A little bit of pride maybe, yep. And so I, I remember going, this season doesn't seem like it's going to end. And so, Lord, you have placed me here. So I would grumble first three times doing this, cleaning, cleaning the, the church facility. And then I went, Lord, if you're going to put me in this, i got to figure out how to have some joy in this circumstance. feels like a prison, Lord, and I hate it, but help me out here. And that, that word from Galatians or Colossians 3.23, which says this. It says, whatever you do, do ask to the Lord and not to men. And that hit me, because I was like, Lord, help me, and then he gave me, gave me the verse. And I went, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I'm not gonna do this for the guy who asked me to do this. I'm not gonna even do it for the church. I'm not gonna do it for me. But Lord, it's an offering to you. So Lord, I don't know if I have the right heart about this, but Lord, you take it, I'm doing this. And so I put my headphones on, I started listening to some sermons. Uh, have you ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous 20th century preacher? I think it took 10 years to go through the book of Romans, and we started at Romans 1.1, and we just started walking through it. And so I began to find that I, I would say, Lord, I'm doing this as an offering to you. I don't know why I'm here, I don't know why you've placed me in this, but I'm gonna be faithful. And so as I'm mopping, doing this, that, and the other, I'm enjoying good sermons. My mind is ending up clearing up, and it's really good. After about three months, they ended up finding a janitor. And how do you think I responded? I remember going, I wish you had it, because I actually thoroughly enjoyed what I was doing. The Lord had changed my heart in that process to realize I wasn't better than anybody else just because I'd accomplished something. Who cares? But the Lord wanted to humble me. And I ended up finding that I was meeting him in just the, doing some of the mundane things. I've said this over the last few weeks, and I want to continue saying this. Is it possible that the Lord has placed you in the season that you're in intentionally, friend? And you are there so he could reveal things to you about yourself you would have never known otherwise. So he could show you that when he takes everything away from you, maybe when he takes things away from you, Remember, life is fill in the blank. When he takes those things away from you, he would show you whether your joy really is in him or it's not. And he would challenge you to show you that there's no other place that you can go to for fulfillment than for him. I found this in my life. I, I hope that you continue to find this in yours. But let us all ask, Lord, how are you calling me to live in a worthy way? Let me magnify you in a difficult moment or in a good moment to show others that you are enough. So we said with Paul, this is what it means to honor Christ in life. This is, this is the confidence that I have in the life that I have now. But what about death, Paul? When well, he says, I'll tell you, this is how I look at things. Verse 21, look at it with me. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And we'll stop there. And so the big statement, right, that we've been hitting on and leading up to this moment is that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You could put it really in two options, the way Paul is seeing this moment. He goes, okay, option A, if they let me out of prison, 
this is how I'm gonna see things, to live as Christ. And so living means Christian labor. You're alive, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna serve you, brother, I'm gonna help you out, sister, this is what I'm gonna do. But option B, if they end up killing me, church in Philippi, Paul says, if they end up killing me, <laughs> hey, that works out, because I gained Jesus at the end. If you're dead, you immediately meet Christ. By the way, I, I have to mention this, wasn't here, but it just came to my mind now. Have you ever heard of soul sleep? It's the idea. Some Christians, some people have believed this, that when you die, you're in kind of a, uh, a state of unconsciousness until the end of all things. Um, th- th- that doesn't work with this passage here. T- Paul understands that when you die, you're immediately in the presence of Christ. To live is Christ now. To die is to be in his very presence. And so, as we said at, uh, another time, you let me live you get more of Christ. You kill me, I get more of Christ. It works out for me. Either way, I win in the end. Our culture has a big problem with death. It it sanitizes the concept of death. It's embarrassing. I think a telltale sign is that you can just turn on your TV or or YouTube or any streaming service and you can see um, how much we hate the concept of wrinkles of getting old, and so we wanna keep our faces looking good and all of that, but you don't like the idea of aging, let alone death in our culture. We use euphemisms, we say they passed away, bought the farm, she got her wings. I remember the first time someone said, um, this lady in, our, in church I was serving said, uh, her, her daughter had died and she said, she got her wings and I had absolutely no clue what that meant. And then someone came to me later and said, well, she understands that when, when her daughter passes away, she, she becomes an angel and, and goes and lives in the presence of the Lord. I should tell you that when you read your Bible, I think what you might be surprised by is that many of our concepts of heaven and hell are actually more informed by old Middle Ages medieval theology than actually what the Bible says. Friend, when, when you die and you meet Jesus, uh, you, you don't go up to heaven and get wings and, and, and become a couch potato and strumming a harp. There's nothing like that in Scripture. It says that you receive a new body and you're with the Lord to praise him and to be with him forever. And so our culture does not like this idea of death. In days gone by, people would die at home. Now what happens? You call 911, they take them to the hospital, and if they pass away, they go to the morgue. And so fewer people die, because, die at home because of this. Even in churches, uh, our church looks different. I would put a picture up on the screen real quick. This is of uh, St. Paul's and St. Peter's. Make sure I'm getting that. Yeah, St. Peter's and St. Paul's Church. This is in Olney, United Kingdom. Five years ago, Justine and I went on a trip uh, to see some Baptist history sites. And I've told you that I've gotten to go to the church of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. This is it right here. What do you notice about the picture? Well, you notice, obviously, there's a very large steeple. Uh, My first day here, by the way, Um, uh, Anthony had taken the steeple that had blown off of our uh, church and he had put it in my office. Um, So a little bit smaller, it's about that high, but this one's a lot bigger. Um, But you notice something else, what do you see? You see the graves in the front, right? And so as I've had some people say, hey, I have some ideas about what we can do with that, with our lawn on the back side of the church. Has anybody thought maybe we could make it into into a grave site? No one's recommended that one to me uh, just yet. And I'm not saying that we should do that. That's not what I'm advocating. But what I am advocating 
is that we should have Paul's perspective. And in Paul's perspective, it is not that we avoid, 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 or have terror. It's not, let me selfishly, because I only live once, man, and so I'm gonna take advantage of other people because I only get to live one time. Instead, instead of seeing only life as just this mere pursuit, this short moment of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the Christian understands that death is a comma and not a period to our story. The Christian understands that death is just a doorway through which we go through to meet our Savior. It loses its finality. And if it loses its finality, that is because we serve the one who, when he dies on the cross, doesn't just do that to pay the sin that you and I deserve to pay through our own death, but he is victorious over death itself, the final enemy of all things. And so if we follow after one who's resurrected from the dead already in time, our hope is that when we look at the life to come, the game is rigged. It's like WWE. The game is rigged. We know what Jesus has already done, and we know the end result is that we will resurrect with him at the end of all things. And so if you have that hope, you can look at this present moment, living with the end in mind like this. You can face injustices. You can face hardships, sicknesses, chronic ailments even. I know some of us are dealing with that. Depression. And you don't have to live in quiet desperation because you know that this moment is temporary, but the life to come is eternal. You can look to this moment right now and think of the saints that have gone before us here at Bethesda, those loved ones who know Christ, who, who we will see in the life to come. And you can think of what Revelation 19 says at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let your mind go here just for a minute and imagine the whole universal church gathered together, no more pain, no more suffering, no more division, as we've seen so much division in our day. And you see a whole body crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Man, I'll tell you this, I've been doing church ministry long enough to know, I really look forward to that moment because when I see the brokenness that is around me, I go, Lord, will you step in and act? And he says, I will at the end of all things, and I am coming soon. That, you should read Revelation more because, because that's the hope that we have because the resurrection resurrection life is ours in Jesus Christ. And so if we have that resurrection life, let us think this way. We should not only think that we believe in Jesus. This is the overcorrection. Of believe in Jesus to go through that doorway at the end of all things. And never mind what's happening right here in the present. Let me speak to our our teachers here, especially of our kiddos. This really, if it applies to anyone, especially applies to you. What kind of gospel are you preaching when you are teaching our little ones, our middle schoolers and our high schoolers? Do you proclaim a message that says, if you don't want to go to hell, believe this message so that you can go to heaven? Or do you preach a message that says, let me not only tell you about the eternal consequences, but let me tell you about how when Jesus saves you, that eternity begins right now. And you can live in the present right now for Christ. And so that period from our lives now till death isn't an intermission, but it's time to get to work. And that's what Paul says. Let me tell you what that looks like. Here's how I get to work. And he says this in verse 25. He says, but to remain convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
And this is the last thing I think that we can say, and then we'll be done. Christians do not retire until they're dead. That's how it goes. You don't retired, retire until you're done. If you're not dead, you're not done, dear friend. And so this fall, uh, I was here on Monday, Tuesday, and the ladies were here switching over our decor. And you see, we, we have harvest decor around us. And um, I saw some of you women are so excited because we're entering the fall season and September and the leaves are falling, it's changing colors. And you're going to wear your outf- new outf- fall outfits. And um, what is that drink from Starbucks? Pumpkin spice lattes. I know we don't have that. Whatever. And so I'm just, I've seen this year after year after year. There's that switch that happens. But here's what I would want to say. As we enter into the fall, and I'm going to be writing my um, update for you soon. I'm going to be writing uh, my annual report, a whopping three months of having been here by the time I write that. And when I write that annual report, here's what I'm going to say before I even, before I even write it down. Here's what the fall has for us. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Bethesda does not need new programs. Bethesda, from what I can see so far, in my short five weeks of being here, is that we are a church that, is, that strives to be on mission. We're imperfect, but we're striving to be on mission. But what I know is, as I see all of the ministry areas in front of me, and all of the things that each of us are doing, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful but the workers are few. There's laborers who need to come aside in this season and step in and help out. And so maybe perhaps this fall, the Lord is calling you, instead of dropping your kids off at Awana, maybe he's calling you to step in here at the end of September, and you're also there, not only investing into your kids, but who knows, maybe God's going to call you to be a father figure or a mother figure to kiddos that don't even come to Bethesda, but yet they're coming, they're coming here on Wednesday nights, and you get to be the one that invests in them. Maybe God's calling you to be a harvester, to labor in, in, um, uh, in our youth ministry. Talked to Anthony this week, and one of the things he said was, man, we, we need an, another couple guys to help us out on Sunday nights. Maybe you've been asking, Lord, how can I serve your church? Maybe, maybe this is the way to do it. Talk to Anthony after the service. He'll have more to say about this next Sunday when he leads us um, in preaching. Or maybe you've been attending Bethesda for a while, and as you've been attending, you've received the blessings of volunteers and others who have invested into you, but maybe you've never given back in your own way. I'll tell you, these lights just didn't turn on by themselves. Maybe God is calling you to to say, I surrender my finances to you, Lord, and I choose to fund the Great Commission by giving you the first fruits of what's in front of me. And, And I say, Lord, I trust you as my provider. You do what seems right to you. Maybe the Lord's calling you in that way to be a servant in his kingdom. Do you believe in the power of prayer? Maybe the Lord is calling you to join us at 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights as we pray. And so I've got a group of 20 plus of us that have been worshiping the Lord and praying on behalf of the church. Maybe God's calling you to join us on Wednesday evenings. There's so many different ways I can mention. But why do we do these things? Why do we serve in God's kingdom? Why do we become a laborer? It's for the joy of others, friends. It's for the joy of others. You can just picture Paul going, just get me out of this prison so I can serve, just so I can be a blessing to other people. I want to ask you, 
could you say that it is the joy of my life to serve others? And if you can't say yes to that, here's what I would want to say. You may say yes with your words, but in reality, your actions show where your heart really is. If I were to look at your pocketbook, would it show me that, that you, where your heart is? I think it would. If I were to look at your calendar, would it show me where your heart is? I think it would. We would never say, no, I don't care about the joy of others, but our actions betray us. I believe God prefers honest prayers. Maybe the best thing for some of us to do in this place this morning is to say, Lord, I know I should have joy in serving. I know I should have joy in you, but I don't. Would you help me? Would you help me? I think he prefers that honesty. And then for the rest of us, the laborers here at Bethesda, as I've gotten to meet you, get to know you, and I've gotten to see what you've been, been doing over this long transition process, here's what I would want to say to you. I've brushed shoulders with some of us who are tired. I've brushed shoulders with some of us who are weary. I was sitting in a room this last week with some friends that go, man, I'm just exhausted. And here's what I think God's word says to you. Beloved, let us not grow weary because in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What you are doing right now may feel like it has no eternal consequences, but it absolutely does. And the perspective of C.S. Lewis is so helpful here when he says there are no, no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, with whom we marry, with whom we work with, and who we snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Friend, your temporary deposit and laboring in God's kingdom, if you are faithful to the end, it will reap a reward that will be cash for all eternity. And so my hope is that as you think of the eternal consequences of what you are all doing, what we are all doing as a church body in this present moment, it would help us to be able to live with the end in mind. I've been ending my sermons by saying, let us all do this to the glory of God. It's not accidental. It's not because he only has three points in a poem and he has the same structure every single week. It's not because of that. But it's because that's how Paul ends here in verse 26. He says, I'm doing this to the glory of God. These words, gospel, joy, glory, Christ, we've been hitting these every single week. And when you put it all together, you can say this, these words with some, one of the most famous pastors of our day who has put it all like this. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. When you have the joy of the Lord in you going, Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice it all to be a servant to others. And I'm willing to bless your name because of it. He gets the credit. And that's our joy because of that. And so let us be a church that lives with the end in mind. Because to live is Christ. We serve and toil in this field right now. But we will reap a reward in the life to come. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Hero. Have a blessed day.